Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. But last week I was up in uh, Inverness uh, and preaching and you know, Inverness, I've, I've got a real affinity with Inverness. I was, uh, I was born there. I, I lived there till I was about five years old. And so it sort of feels like halfly familiar. I mean, I don't, you know, you leave when you're five. It's not like I used to sort of prowl around town or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't know Inverness really like that. But, but I just feel like an affinity. I, I love it. And, you know, it, it seems an odd place for my family to have ended up. Neither of my parents are, are even Scottish. Uh, my dad was from London. And just ran about, I guess, when he would have been around about my age, uh, he just felt a real desire to sort of move out of London. London is about as opposite from the Highlands as you can probably get. And he moved up to like Apple Cross, which is an even smaller, dinky little place, and taught in an outdoor centre as a mountaineer instructor and met my mother there, who bizarrely is from Newcastle. So like two English people sort of meeting in like the back of beyond and getting married. Uh, Probably none of those Scottish people would speak to them or something. So they had to get together. (laughs) But uh, they moved to Inverness, and, and, and Inverness was very key for my dad. My dad's a very, very keen mountaineer. Uh, it's quite funny because he was telling me recently, I think he maybe felt like I was just old enough and had got just sort of geeky enough that I might be able to appreciate this. But he had, uh, he had for his entirety of mountaineering, which go, dates back to the 70s, he had like a spreadsheet. It started out as a notebook, but he had since converted it to a spreadsheet of every mountain he'd climbed on every day, uh, every single detail about it. And there was like... Like a thousands. I mean, honestly, he's like he, he's climbed all the Monroes multiple times. He's marked down how many times he's done each of them. It's kind of geeky, but I did appreciate it. And he had it all in a spreadsheet. Uh, and you know, he, it's just what he loves. And having lived in Inverness, he was able to get a whole bunch of them out of the way. And then he moved down to Dundee, and he got the other bunch out of the way. And it was just, a, but he just loves mountaineering. He just loves getting out there. He just loved the wildness of it. He he was part of various sort of mountaineering clubs when he was up in. Um, I don't know if it was Dundee or, uh, or Inverness, but he was part of the Ancrum Mountaineering Club, and he was the secretary and treasurer and all sorts of things, and he took it very, very seriously. I guess it's a bit like going to church, but uh, <laughs> probably uh, not, not very much like church in a lot of, in a lot of respects. <laughs> but we would, we would always know when my dad was going to go mountaineering because... You know, he would, he would get all his mountaineering uh, equipment out. He'd have, his, he'd have his walking boots on. He'd put on his breeches. He'd have his sort of uh, his, his walking shirts, his, these jumpers that you would just never wear in public and still <laughs> wears today. Uh, he would have this, he had this white sort of woolly hat, which uh, my, my mom just detested. She would be like, Nicholas, 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 take that off in the house. <laughs> Nicholas, you're embarrassing everyone. It's like there's only us in the house. <laughs> You're embarrassing everyone. Make him take it off. And he loved it. He would wear it all the more. <laughs> She'd wake up in the morning and be wearing it. Hello. <laughs> but he would, and he'd have his backpack on. And, you know, the thing was, when he was dressed like that, we knew two things. We knew what his ambition was, and we knew what his association was. He was a part of a mountaineering club. He wore those clothes, and it was almost like a sign. You know, they all wore that same stuff. They all looked like sort of a, a ragtag group of, I, I don't know. They didn't, they, you, the sort of clothes that you wear once you can't wear them in public anymore. Uh, <laughs> that was his association, and his ambition was to get to the summit. Get to many summits, as many summits as he could get in a weekend. That was his ambition. That was his intent. That was his uh, association. And, you know, 
We've been looking at uh, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61's been kind of the focal point of a lot of the suit-up messages. Uh, And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's two things that it really touches on. It says God clothes us in righteousness and salvation. He clothes us in righteousness and salvation. And you know what? Those things that he uh, dresses us in indicates our ambition and our association, right? It shows us what our ambition is. It shows us who we are associated with. And, you know, there is power in what he adorns us in. There is power in what he adorns in. There is a power to elevate our own lives and to elevate the lives of those around us, you know, to have an influence upon those lives. See, in the Bible, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, you sort of see these, uh, these, these sort of seasons where God would just really come upon he would he would give his power he would he would anoint a particular person for a particular time for a particular reason whether it be a prophet whether it be a king uh, or a judge and, and and one of those people that he came upon uh, who we've looked at quite a lot during the series is, is, uh, is Elisha Elijah was chosen see Elijah who was the prophet before him uh, God told him you know this is this is who your successor is going to be you're going to find this guy and, and bring this guy around you. You're going to disciple this guy. You're going to, you're going to help him sort of understand my ways. And then you're going to pass on the mantle. You're going to pass on that anointing into his life. And, and, and we sort of, I, I guess you could listen back to various messages and you'll hear lots about that. But the thing I want to focus on is just at that point where Elijah, who gets called back to heaven, and he said to Elisha, look, Elisha, if you want a double portion, if you want a double portion of, of what God has given to me. You need to be with me right to the very end. You need to make sure you're with me to the very end. See uh, when I get taken away. And when, when he was taken away, Elisha saw this. And, 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 and so he knew that, that just that what God had, uh, what, what had been promised to him was going to be received. And so I'm, I'm just going to pick up the story in 2 Kings 2 verse 13. And it says, He took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when, he ha- uh, and when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Now there were sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him. They said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And these guys had recognized there was a power upon his life. That mantle that uh, Elisha picks up is it, really no more than, a, it, physically, it's just a cloak. It's just a cloak. It's just, just something uh, very physical, very normal in a sense, but, but it's what it represented. See, what it represented, it symbolized the tenure of God's power, the tenure of God's power that has been transferred to Elisha. You know, tenure, um, in the academic world, they used to do this quite a lot. I don't think they do it as much anymore. But if you had a professor, you had someone of great esteem and great honor, and you wanted them to represent your university, and you didn't want them to get poached by a bigger university, you'd offer them a lifetime contract. A contract that would basically meant they, they had a job for life. And, and that was called giving them tenure. But they don't really offer that anymore because, unsurprisingly, when you realize you have a job for life, you don't try as hard anymore. <laughs> My used to, dad used to work at a university. He said the worst thing was these, these, these lecturers, these, these professors who had tenure because they wouldn't do anything they were asked to do because they, they had jobs for life. They had jobs for life. But, but when, when, he had the, when Elisha had that mantle passed to him, it was the tenure 
of, of God's power is transferred to him. That tenure, that life power, that power that God had uh, put into Elijah was transferred into Elisha. Amen? Yeah. But unlike Elijah, who had Elisha that he could pass on the mantle to, uh, Elisha took up the role of a servant before he became his successor. But, but Elisha's servant wasn't as honorable and, and acted in, in ways that, that kind of precluded him from being able to take up the mantle. And so uh, Elisha died and he never passed on the mantle. And I just want to read a little bit from 2 Kings 13, uh, verse 20. It says, Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood to his feet. (laughs) Where did you come from? We thought you were dead. They put this guy down next to Elisha's dead bones. And the power of God that was still resonating within his bones, he raised this guy from the, uh, raised this guy from the dead, revived him. That was, that was power. There was, there was an unprecedented influence upon his circumstances and his surroundings. It still resided in his dead bones. That's, that's the power that was transferred into Elisha's life. You see, when we talk about power, we have to kind of change the, the metrics that by which we sort of think about it. See, conventionally, in the sort of the, the natural world, the, the world that we sort of interact with on a, on a daily, hourly, momently basis, you know, power is sort of conveyed through position and through personality. You know, you know people who command power just by strength of personality, just that charisma, just drawing people to them. And there's those that have just been promoted into position and, and hold power just from the position that they have. Uh, there was a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, me and uh, Adam Robb, uh, who I think is offshore at the moment, but we went to go and see Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which was sort of the film about the, the guy who just had such a strong faith that he felt he just didn't want to bear arms uh, and was sort of almost kicked out of the army, but decided he uh, was able to stay in and became like a real hero. Uh, and he had a real sort of, a, you know, sort of Christian sort of uh, feel about him. And, and just that, that was where his sort of principles sort of sprung from. And I, I enjoyed the film, and I think Adam did as well. And at the end of the film, it sort of comes up the credits. And, and I noticed that Mel Gibson had directed it. I didn't realize that Mel Gibson had directed it at all. It was, it was quite interesting to me. And... I don't know how, I guess this will kind of be a thing on how old you are, but I grew up in the 90s, and in the 90s, Mel Gibson was like one of the four biggest actors at the time. I mean, he was, he was massive. I mean, he did film blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster. If you're like sort of a, a millennial here, you're probably thinking, who's Mel Gibson? You know, you're probably not really too sure. But, but in the sort of 80s and 90s, he was like massive. Lethal Weapon, Braveheart, you know. He won, he was, uh, he even won, he was of, of the sort of those big sort of triple A-lister Hollywood celebrities. He was the only one who'd actually, he won an Oscar for, uh, for directing when he directed Braveheart, I think. And uh, so he was massive. He had tremendous clout. Every film he was in in the 90s was, was a superstar blockbuster. And in, in doing that, he actually, he, he obviously at some point felt that he wanted to make uh, another film that just sort of reflected a bit back on his faith. He was, he was a Christian, and so he, uh, he went to Hollywood, and he made, uh, he made The Passion of the Christ, which uh, I, I probably lots of us are, are aware of and have seen. But 
You have to understand that the power that he must have been wielding at that time to get that film made. If you can imagine him going to the producers and saying to them, you know, I, I want to make another sort of big budget film. And they would have said, hey, Mel, you are money. You can make anything you want. It's like, great. I want to make a historical film. That's brilliant. Braveheart was a complete success. We'll do anything you want to do. Well, I would like it to be a biblical epic. It's like, well, you know, we haven't done one of them in a while, but we reckon you're the man for the task. It's like, well, I want it to focus on Jesus. It's like, well, you know, I don't think the definitive bioptic of Jesus Christ has been done. So, hey, yeah, you could do that. Why not? Well, I don't really want it to be a bioptic. I wanted to really just focus, be just two hours where we really focus on his death, where we just look at just how brutal and horrific his death was. I'm like, oh, okay, uh, well, uh, that sounds all right. And he says, well, and also, uh, I'm not going to star in it. He's like, oh, we're going to get that guy who just started as a sidekick in a Jennifer Lopez film. We'll get him to do it. And they're like, oh, all right, okay, okay, okay. And he says, and there's another thing as well. We're not going to speak any English in it. We're just going to speak Hebrew. And it's going to be mainly a cast that nobody's ever seen before. You could just imagine. That's, that's what he said. That's what that yeah. film was. Yeah. And it got made. And it was a huge, yeah. huge success, right? But, but who could ever? It takes a special kind of power, a special yeah. kind of clout yeah. to get a film like that made, right? And for it to be that kind of success. But as I sort of said at the beginning, if you're a millennial, you probably don't really think much of Mel Gibson. You probably don't know really anything about him because... The thing about power is that it's precarious. When it, when it comes from a place of position or a place of personality, it has, it's precarious. You see, when you make a film like that, whether you like it or not, you are placed on a pedestal. You're, you're put upon a pedestal. And he was placed on a pedestal. And, and, you know, who can stand up to sort of being a, on a moral pedestal when you have that sort of, sort of scrutiny upon your life? And he made mistakes. And, and he went from being an absolute power player in Hollywood, to being a pariah, to being just, just off. He went from triple A list to negative A. You know, nobody wanted anything to do with him. He couldn't star in a film. I don't think he did any for like 10 years after that. It's amazing when you think about it that power can be so precarious. It can be, you can go to sleep the flavor of the month and wake up, you know, completely so last season. <laughs> but see, the, God, the power that is housed within us it's different from what we're naturally familiar. It's, it's totally different it, because its fundamentals rest upon totally different, totally different principles altogether. These principles do not shift, but they do allow us the freedom to pivot. They allow us to pivot so that we are able to maintain influence regardless of which way the tide is going. And so I want to talk to David. What are those principles? What is it that we stand upon that allows the power of God to flow within our life, to stay consistent in our life, that we do not wield the power that is here today and gone tomorrow, but we have tenure, much like Elisha did. The first thing is we have to understand that, that whatever power and influence that God places upon our life, it, is, it comes and is exercised from a place of submission. See, God, the power comes from God. And it is exercised by the Spirit. But, but the power that arises in us is according to his purposes. It's according to his purposes. When, when I was 17 years old, I was, my mom and dad empowered me to drive. They, uh, they, they paid for lessons and they, they got a, an old sort of Nissan Micra 
that wasn't too round and bubble car-ish. It was, it was quite nice, but it's the sort of car that you can uh, knock around a little bit and, 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 and smash the cr clutch out of. My brother put these nice little sort of speed stripes on it when he dragged it down the wall of our, <laughs> of our drive when he was learning to drive. Uh, I didn't do anything quite so dramatic, but... Uh, but my parents empowered me to drive, and, and that was great. I, I felt like Mad Max when I got my license. I was able to sort of, I sort of speed around the back streets of Brody Ferry and, you know, sort of uh, in, my, in my Nissan Micro one liter. But what I didn't realize or what I didn't appreciate was that my mom and dad had a, an agenda, an ulterior motive for having me drive because they really wanted to alleviate the burden upon their lives of having to run around town at three sons who had various sort of groups and clubs and all that sort of stuff. So they helped me learn to drive and, and empowered me to drive with the understanding that I was going to take my brothers around and, and drive them around. And, and I, I just didn't really feel like doing that. <laughs> That's all right, mum and dad. I'll just drive the car. That's okay. I don't really too interested in taking them. And, and what I found out was that that power that I had was very quickly revoked. <laughs> I understood that there were conditions to the power that I was given. The power of the roads did not come free. There was a price that was attached to it. There was, there was uh, conditions that were attached to it. And I, and I realized that that really I had to align my will very much with the will of my parents if I wanted to enjoy the benefits that which they had placed within me. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we sometimes don't always get that. We sometimes see it very much through our own perception and not an understanding of where the origin and where the, the purpose of it is. It is uh, a great example of this in the Bible. If you, if you uh, read about Jonah, Jonah was a prophet, uh, back in the Old Testament. And, he, and a prophet at that time was a very pre prestigious position. Uh, he would have attracted a lot of uh, esteem and honor. But there was a very clear line of accountability. You know, it was very, the purpose of his job was very simple. It was like, you are there to do God's will. And, and one day God said to him, look, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to just sort of tell them that I'm not very happy with them. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And although it wasn't really mentioned at the time, his reasons... Jonah wasn't really up for doing that. So he thought, I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, I get a little bit of this in my house sometimes. I have four little children, and sometimes I ask them to do something. My oldest son, I will say to him on almost a daily basis, Nathan, can you go and put your shoes on? And this is the response I usually get. <laughs> I can't, Dad. My legs don't work. It just lies there. I tell you what, there's nothing more frustrating than a child lies there. It's, not, it's like if he's mo still upright, I can kind of corral him, but he just lies there like this on the ground. I might preach like this, actually. At the end, be like, everyone would be like, you're over time, you're over time. I'm sorry, my legs don't work. <laughs> but he doesn't even, he doesn't do that. He's like, I'm going in the opposite direction. He's like, God, you want me to go to Nineveh? Well, I'm going this way. Yeah. I am going in the opposite direction. He was that intent on not doing what God had told him to do. So he hops on a boat and very quickly begins to understand that how powerless he actually is. Yeah. See, up to that point, he reckoned he had a lot of power. He reckoned, I'm, I'm the prestigious man of God, you know, and I, I will make decisions as I see fit. And he went on that boat, and the storm came. It was going to sink the boat, and, and 
he realized very quickly that, that he wasn't that powerful after all. And uh, the guys on the boat were like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he said, well, you're going to have to throw me overboard. And they're like, we don't want to do that. He said, well, it's what you're going to have to do. So uh, after some convincing, they, they heaved him over the side and, and they were sort of saved. And, and instantly he was sort of picked up or he was swallowed by a, a big fish. And he was in the fish. And while, and I guess sitting in a fish, probably for three days, has a bit of an influence on, uh, you know, your will, you know. You might, you might be feeling a little bit more sort of uh, willing to sort of give a bit. Anyway, so he, he, he's sitting in there, and uh, he calls out to God, and God says, yeah, I'm listening, what is it? And uh, he said, in Jonah 2, uh, verse 4, he said, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surround me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But... I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And in that that moment, there was a a change. And he he redirected his path. And the fish led him out. And he went to Nineveh. And he he told them, he prophesied. He said, look, you guys, you have not pleased God. You've you've behaved in a really bad way. God is uh, planning to sort of get rid of you, to, to, to wipe you off the face of the earth. But in that the people of Nineveh responded and said, God, we're really sorry. Please forgive us. And they, they showed repentance and, and God forgave them. And this is where we begin to understand why Jonah didn't want to go there in the first place. He goes off on a hill and he's furious. He's absolutely furious. These guys, I came here, uh, prophesied brimstone and fire and God's going to let them off the hook. And he sat there and he was pretty furious with them. And, and God came around. God gave him a bit of an example and you can read about that in Jonah. Uh, but God came around him and just sort of shared a bit of his heart. He said, I had a bit of a heart-to-heart moment with Jonah. He said, Jonah, you're right. I I never wanted to destroy these people because I love them. I really, really love them. They didn't know what they were doing. It's like they they didn't know what the right thing to do was. And they they needed you to go there to extend the opportunity for salvation. They didn't know that they were bad. They didn't know that they were behaving in the way that they were. They, they needed to have a revelation of that, and that's why I sent you. And there was something in just that moment where he shared, they shared the heart. There was, there was a heart transfer. There was an understanding that was given to Jonah where he began to appreciate that God's will was not always just this straightforward, straight line. There was, there was something that underpinned it always. There was something that sort of carried it and it was this idea that he just loves people he just loves people and he wants people to come back into relationship with him he doesn't want to punish people he just wants people to come back into relationship and see it's it's when you share relationship with God that you begin to he begins to unveil the desires of his heart to you he begins to make those things just clearer to you my 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 son Nathan uh He's, he gets very focused on things like little boys do. He's very obsessive about certain things that he likes doing, whether it be uh, animals or, or numbers or arithmetic. And he w- went through a period recently where he'd got a science book 
And he just wanted to do science experiments all the time, which if you've got little children, it's not really what you want in your house. Uh, but my dad, uh, his grandfather, saw this and just, just saw it as an opportunity to really just relate to Nathan on a sort of a one-to-one basis. So he took Nathan's book and he, he wrote down all the sort of the ingredients, all the stuff that was needed for all these uh, experiments that they could do. And then he went out and bought them and kept them in his house. And so now whenever we're going to granny and granddad's, the kids are like, great, we can do experiments. And, and they go there and they do experiments in their house. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure on one or two occasions my dad has thought better of this idea. But, but they, they love it. And, and my, dad's now, my dad's now got so into it that he's been uh, researching. And we're now on the 1st of April. I don't think this is an April Fool's. Uh, but he's arranged for us to go down to Edinburgh to an international science fair. He's going, we're all going to go in science fair. Great. <laughs> Apparently, I went when I was five as well, so uh, it's like we're passing it on. But, uh, but you know, he chose, you know, there was, an, there was a, an, inter, uh, an interaction. There was a choice to sort of engage, to find out, to have a heart-to-heart, to have that opportunity to get to know. Yeah. And what happens in that is that the desires of one, you kind of take them on yourself. Yeah. They become your desires as well. Um, in Acts 13.22, uh, it sort of describes King David, and it says, I have found, this is God talking, I have found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. He's a, he's a man after my own heart. Which, which means, basically, God had a heart for the people of Israel. He loved Israel. He loved those people. And so did David. David loved those people. And because of that, he will do all my will. See, David, David didn't serve the people because he was the king. He, he was king because he loved the people. You understand? He, he was king because he loved the people. God chose him. God, God saw him because there was a love. There was a heart after his own heart. And that's why he was king. It wasn't an obligation. It was, he was, his life was submitted to God's. But what he did was not in itself like... He was, his nature was towards God. His, 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 his heart was towards God. See, our... The true nature that resides within us often betrays good intention. I was running uh, to work the other day, and I I passed uh, these two ladies who were taking their extremely well-groomed dogs for a walk. They were all (laughs) fluffy and everything. But as soon as those two dogs passed, and they looked gorgeous dogs, so gentle, so peaceful, those two dogs passed, and they barked at each other like nothing else. Like, what are you looking at? Come on, then. Give it a go. And they were like up on their back legs. And these ladies were, oh. You know, and, and because the thing is this, that a dog's nature is the dog's nature. When it sees another dog, it wants to bark. It doesn't matter how much it's dressed up. It doesn't matter what the facade is. A dog's nature is still a dog's nature. It wants to run around. It wants to get dirty. It wants to bark at other dogs. And it doesn't matter what it's dressed up on the outside. And see, submission, it can't just be a leash. You know, those dogs needed to be kept on a lead. I remember my mum used to get really, she was really impressed. We had a dog called Marty when we were growing up. And uh, she would take the, the little ones out for a walk. And uh, she would childmind her uh, when I say little ones. I'm not being diminishing of my little brothers. <laughs> the little ones. Uh, but she would, she would look, take these kids out. And, and she would sometimes give the dog, uh, Marty, the lead to hold in her own mouth. And this was great right up until the day that Marty decided, oh, wait a minute. And just went running off. <laughs> Because a dog needs a lead, right? A dog needs to be leashed. It, maybe not every single moment of the day, but it needs a lead. But if, if our submission is like a lead, if our submission to God is like a leash, yeah. we're, what we're really doing is we're, we're repressing our true desires. Yeah. We're repressing, we're, we're keeping them under leash. 
And what does that do? That, that creates a pull in our lives. Yeah. It yeah. creates something we pull against. And there's that tension is trying to maintain that facade. Because it's a facade. And you know what? There are times where we have to have strict discipline. You know, we, we have to discipline ourselves. Uh, but when there's a relationship that underpins, then we're not relying on beating our flesh. But rather we respond out of God. It says in Psalms 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law, or another way of saying your word, is within my heart. It's within my heart. Your word is within my heart. And that's, I delight in doing your will. It's a delight for me to do this. It's not a hardship. I'm under submission to you. The power is, it's, it's for your purpose. But I delight in doing your will. And that's, Affection grants us the grace to bend our will to align with God's. Doing, doing things out of love gives that sacrifice a meaning and a return. And it's why God describes, or Jesus describes, the two commandments that focus on love as being the most important. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, loving God produces love for the world. A strong relationship allows you to uh, allow space for submission. When you have that strong relationship with God, there's space enough to have submission. And in submission, it opens up that floodgates of power, that floodgates of relationship and, 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 and influence. A relationship grounds us. It grounds us because everything is in deference to God. We defer to God. And it helps us to correctly frame the contributions of our life. Rather than, if, if without that, when it's just about sort of discipline, then our own ideas, much like Jonah, our own ideas start to sort of overtake us. We start to allow them to have greater prominence. But when we allow relationship to be what grounds us, to be that foundation, then we are always in deference to God. It's a relationship that he is God and will always be God. And whatever we do, whatever we contribute is within that context. So we have to understand that we minister in support of his will. We don't bend his will to support our ministry. We don't bend his will to support our ministry. It's about supporting his will. And the degree to which we are willing to uh, endure discomfort or indignity is, is directly related to whether we're sort of rela- uh, motivated by the intimacy of that relationship, whether it's by glory, whether we are infatuated and uh, encapsulated by the idea of glory and esteem. Those things kind of diminish. Those things put a, uh, a restraint on our willingness to, to, to serve. And God... The call of God will test the the strength and depth of your relationship, but in practice it enhances both. It makes both of those bigger. The the power of God, as he works in us, it's it's a collaboration. It's a collaboration. In 1 Peter 4, verse 14, it says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, it sometimes requires something of us. It requires us to give of ourselves. But we take tremendous joy in seeing his will overcome. 
his will taking precedence. It's like Jesus. Jesus, when he gave his life, when he went to the cross, and he endured all that he endured, and even in his humanity, his most human moments, like, I really don't want to do this. Take this cup away from me. And who did it benefit? Did we benefited from it? He suffered, and yet we benefited. But he got that verse. That, that verse encapsulates him because nothing made him pl- more pleased than to watch humankind, mankind, be won back to God, brought back into relationship with him. Nothing made him pleased. His heart swelled as he saw the will of God complete. I want to leave you with this final thought. The power of God, it doesn't ricochet off you. I sometimes think that we think of ourselves as just bearing mirrors that reflect God's glory, that it, that it never really touches us. It's just we, we're there just to let it reflect off of us. The power of God emanates from within you. You are not just something that it ricochets off. You are something, you are a person, you are, you are his vessel that is filled with his power. That mantle has much greater power than we, than we sometimes appreciate. It's like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he held those tablets of the commandments. It says that his skin shone with the glory of God. It shone. He was emanating the power of God. He, he, it was so much so that people couldn't even look at him. The Bible characterizes us as being like a, a, a city on a hill, a light in a dark place that cannot be hidden. His power does not ricochet off you. It does not reflect off you. It emanates from you. It comes from you. God has placed it within the inside of you. When, when Jesus was baptized, a dove settled upon him. And God proclaimed him his, son, his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. His beloved son in whom he was well pleased. That dove settled that spirit settled upon his life. It did not just reflect off him, it emanated from within him. See, the suit of power, it's to wear the title son and daughter. To wear the title son and daughter, friend of Jesus. That's the power because in those titles, in those roles, yeah, we're in submission. It's a willing submission. It's a submission born out of relationship, born out of a kinship, born out of an affinity for the same things, a heart after the same things, a desire to see the same things transpire, to work in the lives of those around you. God is putting out a call today. You know, some of us, we want to see the lives of those around us change, and he's just saying, just need to tweak you just need to change a little bit of how you see me how you see my power how you see how I work through you let it change you and it will change everything around you it will change everything around you thanks for listening if you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times then don't forget to visit our website www junction church